0: In March of 2005, in Death Valley National Park in California, flowers that hadn't bloomed in 50 years sprang to life from seeds with coverings so thick that they can hibernate for decades. Why? Why, after years of lying dormant, did these seeds pop open and burst to life and have this incredible bloom there in the desert? Because that winter, the desert received three times a normal amount of rain, and it was just what those seed were waiting for. In 2015, the same thing happened in a desert in northern Chile. It had been desolate and dry and colorless, and then all of a sudden, it sprang to life. Uh, sometimes, as uh, as your pastor, I get caught up in writing sermons and leading Bible studies and taking care of budgets, and making plans, and buying signs for our summer location. And everything just seems like it's humming along, everything's good. But then I get called to, to come to the hospital, or I sit down with somebody at lunch and listen to their story, or I, I stop to pray, and I'm reminded that, that many of us, uh, at one time or the other, e- even now, are going through these deserts in our lives, Uh, Dealing with a health issue, dealing with family stresses, dealing with work stresses, uh, dealing with kids who won't sleep, uh, dealing with people who just won't do what they're supposed to do, and we haven't haven't given up hope yet. We still hope that that desert of our life is going to break out in blooms and be beautiful and wonderful again, but when? Right? That, that's where we're stuck. It's like when we keep waiting and waiting and waiting for something to happen, for something to change. So what we're going to do this morning, we're, going to, we're just going to look at the reality of that desert waiting and then talk about what God is doing in the midst of that. We're going to look at the reality of that desert waiting and then talk about what God is doing in the midst of that. So let's look at God's word together. Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the girl was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Letha Kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. for She was 12 years of age and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the scriptures. Uh, Thank you for the time to to sit and think about them this morning. Uh, Help us to understand and to believe uh, and to trust you as a result of what we hear here. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first thing I want to talk about uh, briefly in this is just the reality that we all experience of this waiting in the desert. Uh, I've always heard that the traffic jams uh, going out of Charleston when everybody was trying to leave prior to Hurricane Hugo many years ago were unbelievable. In fact, I'm told by one of my friends that they were so bad that people were stopped on the interstate and they got out and they were doing the, the, um, the dances th- the, from Zoolander on the side of the interstate just to, just to kill time. Um, the only thing close to that that I've ever been in was in a traffic jam with Susan once on I-65 in Alabama where everybody was literally just gave up and was milling about on the side of the interstate. Like, we're, we're, we're not going anywhere anytime soon. Uh, you've all probably been in something like that. Waiting, waiting, waiting. You know the, the weight of sitting in a traffic delay. Uh, that's true also in life, though. Just in, in everyday existence, There's this waiting that we go through where we feel like we're just trapped in the desert, where there's no water, where nothing seems to be blooming. And that's a real experience that we have. Uh, The woman in our story this morning had spent 12 years waiting in the desert. 12 years suffering. 12 years going from doctor to doctor who seemed to only be making things worse. 12 years being ceremonially unclean, being an an outcast. 12 years in which she had gone through all of her money looking for a cure for her disease. And she wasn't any better. In fact, she was just worse. We also meet in this story a man named Jairus, which I think is a good name for a rapper. But uh, in any event, Jairus had never experienced anything like that. He was a respected man. When he, when he said jump, people said how high. But now his 12-year-old daughter was dying. And so in desperation, he had asked Jesus to do something about this. And Jesus had agreed. But now Jesus, I mean, she's dying and they got to get there. But now they've just stopped in the middle of the street and they're having this discussion in front of everybody. Jesus has stopped and he's looking for this woman who has touched him. How do you think you would feel if you were Jairus at at this point? How long do you think it felt like you were standing there waiting for Jesus to go and to tend to your dying daughter? Two minutes? Twelve minutes? Probably seemed like twelve years to Jairus. Twelve years in the desert. Twelve years waiting for God to act. Uh, Some of us may be there now. You may be there now. Uh, waiting in the desert. And I think we need to know, some of the things we need to be reminded of in the midst of this is that you're not necessarily there because of sin. You're not necessarily there because you made a wrong choice. You're You're not there because God is mad at you. You may be there because of somebody else's sin. You may be there because of reasons that only God knows. But these delays in the desert they are part of life uh, in a fallen world they don't mean that God doesn't love you they don't mean that you're just not lucky or that your life is pointless they can actually even be the thing that God is using in your life where he's preparing you to bloom where he's preparing you to, to flourish where he's preparing you to know real joy Uh, A few years back, Susan planted some some roses outside our kitchen window uh, just above our pool. And she was really excited about how beautiful these roses were going to be. There There was eager expectation in the Kendrick household of roses. But then nothing happened. And nothing happened. And nothing happened. And then finally she said, this past winter, I'm going to dig those roses up. They just—they're just not going to bloom there. That's not a good spot for them. And then this year, bam—that's the sound roses make when they bloom. Um, <laughs> you have to listen very closely. Then this year, these roses just sprang to life. I mean, it's the most—really, the most beautiful roses, most beautiful display of blooms that I've—I've I've ever seen. Well, those years when they weren't blooming, what were they doing? Well, I, I guess they were singing their roots down into the ground. They were, they were getting acclimate. They were storing up nutrients. They were doing whatever roses do. Uh, they were being prepared, though, by their creator to bloom. Uh, often there are times when it's like that for us. We're in the desert. And those are the very times when we're being prepared by our creator to bloom. How God do that? What exactly is God doing in our lives during those delays in the desert? Well, that's the second thing I want us to, to spend our time talking about this morning. I wanted to see that that waiting is real and it is a part of our experience. But God is at work during that waiting. How is he at work? Well, three things I want us to see from this text that he's doing during the waiting He's bringing us to himself, he's growing our faith, and he's setting us free. He's bringing us to himself, he's growing our faith, and he's setting us free. First of all, he's bringing us to himself. Think about the two main people in this text. Uh, Would would Jairus or this sick woman ever have come to know Jesus if difficulty hadn't entered their lives? Would would Jesus really have been on their, their radar as someone they would embrace... Jairus was one of the rulers of the synagogue. This was one of the the lay people who was responsible for organizing the worship services in the synagogue and also for some of the teaching. Uh, These people were Pharisees, usually. And so Jairus was was busy living a respectable, orderly, religious life. And he was a part of this group of people who really had no no use for Jesus, If you've been paying attention to the gospel, Mark, he was a a, a part of the the leaders, and they had no use for Jesus. He He was fine. If you ask him how he was doing, I'm fine. I'm fine. Everything's great. Until the day when his daughter is close to death, and then he runs, and he throws himself at the feet of Jesus in this act of desperate faith. Uh, The woman in the story had suffered with a discharge of blood for 12 years, and and that means what you think it means. She wouldn't have been allowed into the section of the temple that was reserved for women. Uh, She would have been required to let others know that she was unclean so that they could avoid coming into contact with her and becoming ceremonially unclean themselves. She was an isolated outcast. He came up behind Jesus in the midst of the crowd And touched his garments in this desperate act of faith, thinking, if I just touch him, if I just touch the clothes he's wearing, then maybe that'll make me well. Uh, I I think this is probably what faith feels like uh, in its beginning steps. It's this desperate crying out to Jesus because you know that there's nobody else that can do anything for you. Well, that's a hard place to get to, isn't it? It's a hard place to get to of of finally giving up on all of your own resources and casting yourself on Jesus. Uh, The the expression my dad always used for giving up was he would say calf rope and calf like like a baby cow. I'm teaching you some Southern Alabama English this morning. All right, the calf rope, and so like if you were arm wrestling and you wanted to give up, you would holler calf rope. All right, that's what you would do. That's how you expressed giving up. It's a that's hard for us, hard place for us to get to. Say I, I give up, calf rope. I give up on this, and come to Jesus. Uh, two thousand six, Tiger Woods had won a bunch of golf tournaments. At that point, uh, he won the two thousand six Buick Invitational. Um, and three months after that, his dad, Earl Woods, died. And Tiger Woods walked into one of these deserts of life. Twenty-five days after his father passed away, Tiger Woods started training with the Navy SEALs. Uh, his dad had been a member of the Special Forces. And one of the Navy SEALs asked him, "What you know, what are you what are you doing here? And Tiger said, my dad told me I had two paths to choose from. I'd either be a golfer or I'd be a special operations officer. And so now I'm I'm, I'm trying to, to to discover this path, figure out if maybe I need to go down this path. The other thing that happened in the months after Tiger Ty- was dad died was that the extramarital affairs that everybody came to find out about, that was either when they started or when they really intensified in his life. Uh, a writer for ESPN wrote, he juggled, Tiger, Tiger juggled a harem of women at once, looking for something he couldn't find. Looking for something he couldn't find while he made more and more time for his obsession with the military. See, he didn't just hang out and train with the Navy SEALs. Like, he found the people that trained the Navy SEALs and started going through all that training every day as opposed to, like, just training to play golf. He was, he was bulking up. He was, he was training to be a tough guy. He punished his body with extreme workouts. And slowly, what happened over the next few years, what we've all seen play out, was that he damaged his body and he destroyed his marriage The the false saviors of extramarital affairs and extreme fitness forcibly removed the false savior of golf. And you you, you look at that and you wonder, if only in that desert place he could quit looking to the next thing to fix him, if only he would holler calf rope and cry out to Jesus Christ, the savior he really needs. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in The Problem of Pain, wrote, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. In the midst of, of your desert place, are you turning to every Savior but the Savior? Are you turning to every Savior but Jesus? Or will you holler calf rope and give up and fall at the feet of Jesus. God often uses these desert experiences to set us up for just this, to bring us to the point where we'll cry out in desperation and finally come to him. What are you doing? What are you doing with your desert place? Uh, Secondly, God uses these times of waiting in the desert to, to grow our faith. Uh, The next delay for the woman in the story was not 12 years, but it probably felt like 12 years. She wanted to show up and kind of run in and touch Jesus' garment and then get out of there before anybody realized who she was. But Jesus stops and makes everybody look for her, like like he calls attention to her. And verse 33 says that she comes forward with fear and trembling and falls down before Jesus and... Tells him the whole story. That's not where she wanted to be that day. She didn't want to be standing in front of everybody telling her story. This is not a delay. This is not a wait that she had planned on. But Jesus had. And Jesus says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. And the Greek word there is the same word for saved. Daughter, your faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Uh, You wanted healing and you came in faith thinking if I just touch his clothes, you'd be okay. And Jesus is saying to her, my clothes aren't magic. My clothes aren't magic. You've been healed by your faith in me. Let me redirect that infant faith that you had in my clothes and encourage you to put it all on me. Let me show you how loved you are by calling you daughter. It's the only time Jesus ever calls anybody that in all of the Gospels. Let me set you on a new course for the rest of your life by sending you out with these words, Go into peace. How many of us have started out with this tiny, immature faith in Jesus, maybe superficial, and it's in the delays, it's in the deserts of life where we begin to see the limits of our ability to fix things, where we confront our own sins and shortcomings, and Jesus says, come tell me your story, come tell me your story, and he doesn't rebuke us. He doesn't correct us for being this unclean person that has come and grabbed hold of his cloak. He says to us, son, daughter, your faith has saved you. I love you. Go in peace. Can you see how that would take the, the tiniest faith and begin to, to grow that faith and to turn it into something that would blossom in our lives? Uh, but in this story, the, the faith of Jairus is, is going to grow too. In fact, I think the woman is the object lesson for him. Uh, Jesus is saying to Jairus, Look, I know you just got word that your daughter died, but look at this woman. Have you seen her faith? And then Jesus says, Do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, Only believe. Jesus, she's dead. What are you talking about? Do not fear, only believe. Not when I'm around. She's only asleep. Why did Jesus put Jairus through this? Maybe the reason Jesus put Jairus through this was so that he could see that he didn't just need a faith healer to come and take care of his daughter. The leader of the synagogue needed to know the Messiah who could raise the dead. And this is what Jesus' way of saying to Jairus, I'm he. I'm the Messiah that brings resurrection life that not only your daughter needs, but you need as well. In other words, this isn't about just about your daughter getting well. This is about this infant faith that you have when you threw your faith, when you threw yourself at my feet, growing up and blossoming into full faith into the one who's the resurrection and the life. You know, the thing that, that hits me in this story is how out of control Jairus is. Um, you know, he was, he was used to running things. But at this point, Jesus is saying, you, you, can't, you can't do anything about this. You can't call anybody and fix this. You can't talk to your buddies at the synagogue and get them to do anything about this. You're going to have to trust me. Right now, You're going to have to trust me. And that's a really hard place to be, isn't it? That's a really hard place to be where you're saying, wow, I've really just got to trust Jesus. It's really hard to trust Jesus when the doctors don't know what to do when there are not any dietary things you can change to fix things. It's hard to trust Jesus with our children when the world seems like it's trying to, to pull them away from us. It's hard to trust Jesus with our futures. It's hard to trust Jesus enough with our money, enough not to be stingy or not to be a workaholic. And we find ourselves saying, Jesus, I, I, know, I know you say, don't fear, only believe. But really... We both know this whole thing is going to fall apart if I'm not there. We, we know that. It, it's, it's so hard for us to trust him. And I think the delay in the desert is where Jesus like forcibly removes our hands from the steering wheel and tapes them together with duct tape so that we can't reach the pedal. And then he takes our feet and he ties them up. Excuse me, the steering wheel. Then he takes our, our feet and he ties them up so that they can't reach the pedals, and I think he does that, and then he looks at us and smiles and says, now will you quit trying to drive? Now will you quit trying to drive? I've got this. And see, your your faith can't grow, my faith can't grow if in that moment we then proceed to try to grab the steering wheel with our teeth and say, I'm going to drive, dang it. And it's like we think Jesus is a 15-year-old with a learner's permit. Like, I'm not, I'm not going to trust you in this car yet. He can, he can do it. He can drive. We have to trust him in it. And so he says, don't fear, only believe. And it's one of the hardest things he'll ever call you to do. Uh, number three, God uses the lay of the desert to bring people to faith. He uses the delay of the desert, the waiting of the desert to grow our faith. And finally, he uses these weights in the desert to set us free. What was Jairus freed from? I think Jairus was disabused of the notion that his power could fix everything. He was freed to see that it wasn't about him, but it was about the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Perhaps even freed of his fear of death. As he saw his daughter raised from the dead and then sees Jesus raised from the dead himself but what about the unclean woman she was freed that day from a lifetime of shame Uh, she was freed that day from a lifetime of being the unclean one a lifetime of being on the outside looking in Jesus is saying her daughter you want to be healed and then you want to slink away but I'm going to remove your shame and I'm going to restore your dignity so that you don't have to hide your face anymore, so that you don't have to slink around anymore. You're my daughter, and I want everybody here to know that, that you've been made clean. Uh, At the very beginning of Les Mis, Jean Valjean is released from prison. He's paroled. He's free. And the, the prison warden, Javert, makes sure to look at him and to say to him, you're not free you're not really free you're leaving here but you'll always be prisoner 24601 wherever you go you're going to carry this letter of shame with you you're a prisoner 24601 and everybody will have to know that and you will always have to bear that and part of what has to happen over the course of Les Mis is Jean Valjean has to wrestle with that and he has to to overcome this idea of simply being condemned 24601 and understand that he has forgiven Jean Valjean. That is who he is now. He is no longer simply 24601. He has to come to this place where he realizes he doesn't have to bear the shame any longer. But that doesn't happen easily, does it? That doesn't usually happen overnight. There are deserts to go through. There are delays. But that desert is often that place where we own up to who we are and we hear Jesus say to us, That's who you were. Now you're my daughter. Now you're my son. Will you believe that? Will you believe me? Jesus has to to work the gospel into us and he has to say that to us over and over again. Daughter, your faith has saved you. It really has. Your faith has saved you. Now go into peace. Uh, I imagine that there are many of us who are carrying around shame. uh, That the words that we've heard spoken over us are 24601. And we think I'll always be the adulterer. I'll always be the one who embarrassed the family. I'll always be the not-so-smart one. I'll always be the unattractive one. I'll always be the son of a worthless father. I'll always be unclean. And Jesus comes to us again and again, and he says, Don't you realize what your faith in me has gained you? It's gained you in your name. You're not 24601 anymore. You're my daughter. You're my son. Tell the world your story. You were unclean, but that's not who you are anymore. You don't have to, to stand up in the front of the church and tell your story, but I encourage you to find somebody to tell, somebody who loves Jesus. Somebody can, can hear that unclean about you and say to you, that's who you were, but that's not who you are any longer. You are no longer 24601, you're a daughter of the king, you're a son of the king, he's removed your shame, he's brought you into life, now go into peace, go into peace. Waiting in the desert is is a hard place to be, but in the desert, God brings us to himself, he grows our faith, and he sets us free. Waiting in the desert is where God prepares his children to bloom. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God, till he has mercy upon us. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would be with us in those desert places where we wait and that you would cause us uh, to turn to you and to cry out and to wait patiently. Help us not to fear, but help us to trust you and to believe. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.